Father, I want to give you thanks for your word that is living and active, and uh, thank you for what you're going to do through your word as we open our hearts in faith now. I pray that by your spirit, you will grant us the grace that we need to receive that word and to live it out in our life for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Very good to see you here this morning on this lovely fresh morn. Are we warm enough? Not sure. I just want to say a special thank you to Bex. Where's Bex gone? Over the back. Thank you, Bex, for not only reminding us of the plight of those who are less well-off in the world, in particular the Syrian refugees, but also reminding us this morning about the call to fast. And uh, we learn about that in the Old Testament. Jesus uh, assumes his followers will be fasting. And if ever you do a study in the scriptures around fasting, you'll find there is one theme. There's many reasons why you could fast, but there's one theme above all that shines through in the old and the new, and it's the theme of humbling ourselves. So thank you, Bex, for reminding us of the call to be humbled by God. And, uh, and well done, well done. Well, church, over the last three weeks, we've been hearing quite a bit uh, from First Peter about the call to submit, the call to submit. And last week, Sandy reminded us, uh, well, actually right, reminded us husbands why we don't need to do the ironing. Um, no, actually, she didn't remind us about that at all, did she, Ruth? No, that's why I wasn't preaching last week, probably. She reminded us of the call to voluntarily submit to one another out of love. The week before that, we heard about the call in our workplace. Uh, Peter was talking about slaves having to submit to masters. We apply that to our workplace, having to submit to those who are above us in our workplaces. And prior to that, the week before, we heard about the call to submit to our civic authorities, to our governors, to our city councillors even. We acknowledge that this morning, Mike, don't we? This morning... We are going to continue on in this journey of listening to God's word about that call to submit. And this morning, Peter gives us a bit more of a vision, and he says, This is what the whole point of this journey of submission is about. You've been called to submit in all those different contexts, and now in verse 8 of chapter 3, Peter says, Finally, I'm going to give you a vision of why this is all going to help you, this journey of submission in the context of suffering. Peter is going to say to you all, he's going to say to the whole church in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Dunedin, and Hope Church here this morning, all of you, finally, I'm going to give you the end goal of this, the telos, he says. I'm going to give you a vision of why you should be learning to submit in the context of suffering by doing good. Peter's going to explain to us the purpose and the end goal of all this. Now, I have a pretty strong conviction in my life, and you can test this on the way home when your kids are asking you all the questions about what did you learn? What did you learn this week? I have a strong conviction that the reason that our culture is so sick right now is because we have lost any sense of purpose about what we're here for. 
few weeks ago, our government said, we're going to give you $1.9 billion to try and fix the mental health issue. $1.9 billion. Why is our culture so sick? Why are we so mentally unwell? I have a pretty strong conviction that at the center of that is we as a culture have lost any sense of purpose. Why am I here? What does it mean to be human? We've lost the sense of purpose in our life, and that's why our culture is unraveling. What does it mean to be in a family? What is the purpose of my work? Why do I go off to work tomorrow morning? What's the purpose of going to work? Our culture tells us we go off to work to earn some money. It's an economic exchange. The scriptures tell us a completely different understanding of what our purpose is. Why are we called to engage in the public sphere? Why are we called to, invade, to engage with the civic goings-on of our city? What's the purpose of our public life together? Our culture has lost any sense of that. Well, this morning, I trust and I hope that Peter is going to answer some of those questions. He's saying, finally, all of you, I'm going to give you a sense of the end goal, the reason that you are here for. And your kids are going to ask you about that when you head home. The Bible speaks a word of hope into this hopeless place that our culture has sleepwalk. And I have a sense that our culture is desperately thirsty to hear, to drink from this well of salvation. Our culture is desperate to know what our purpose is. We are starving, if you like, like Syrian refugees, to know what our purpose is. And we, the church, above all other people, should be able to communicate to our broken world, this is why you're here. This is why we're working. This is why we are doing what we're doing. But let me warn you again this morning, you may not like what Peter has to say. God's word will say to you, as, we, as he's been saying for the last three, three weeks, as he's been saying for the last 2,000 years, if you want to understand what your purpose is, you're going to have to submit. You're going to have to humble yourself. You're going to have to submit to the people around you. You're going to have to submit to the people in authority over you. Supremely, you're going to have to submit to his word. If you want to know what your purpose is, you are going to have to choose to yield voluntarily, as Sandy reminded us last week, Otherwise, you set in motion a train wreck of a collision with your God who has created you. Let me say that again. You either learn to yield voluntarily to God, or you set in motion a train wreck collision with your God. So let's turn to 1 Peter, and we're in chapter 3, and we're picking up from verse 8. And as I say, Peter begins with that word, finally. Let me give you the talos, the end goal, Peter is saying. All of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Now, Peter, interestingly, he drags in five different words, and four of those words are only used once in all of the New Testament. He's being very innovative here. But these are a bit of a description of what this end goal is going to look like for this new community that Peter is shaping. In the same way that Jesus could say in the Sermon of the Mount, you have heard, 
in the Old Testament, but I say to you, Peter in a, in a similar frame is saying here, I'm calling you and I've been calling you to submit in all these different areas. And if submission is the minimum standards, Peter now goes on to say, but I'm saying to you, you're going to go to a whole different level. If submission is the minimum standard, now Peter is saying, I want you to be these following things. I want you to be like-minded. I want you to be sympathetic. I want you to be loving to one another, compassionate and humble in spirit. These are the marks of what, Paul, uh, what Peter is expecting of this new community that he's calling the church. Like-minded, you're harmonious. Your relationships with one another are harmonious. Sympathetic, literally you are suffering with, you have empathy for those people around you. You have empathy for the people in Syria. You have empathy for the refugees who have been relocated into the city. You have empathy. You are sympathetic to those around you. You're expressing love to one another. Literally brotherly love, the Philadelphia, you're expressing the type of family love for those people around you. You are compassionate, literally you are tender-hearted with those people around you. And finally, you are humble, you are humble in spirit. Peter is describing here relationships of the community of God's people. The gracious relationships of God's people attractive, beautiful, both to experience but also to observe the type of relationship that you thrive in. When you experience this type of relationship, this God-inspired relationship, you want more of it. When you get a taste of this type of community, you think, that's what I've been longing for. That's what I've been thirsting for all these years. Where your guard comes down, you can be honest, you can be vulnerable with the people around you because you know you're not going to be judged. You know the people around you have a brotherly love for you. You know the people around you are sympathetic, they're like-minded, they want harmony. It's the type of community that we all yearn for, that we were created for, and this is the type of community that Peter is saying, this is what we're working towards, a grace-filled community. But the one thing that gets in, road, in the road of this community is sin. <clears throat> and here's the thing. We all carry this sin. We all carry our baggage. And so we all get into this community and we think, great, I'm in the church. All is going to be well. <clears throat> but we carry our sin into that community with us, don't we? And guess what? You and I are all prone to this sin, prone to the factions, to the judgments, to the hard hearts. John Stott said the following, he said, We who claim to be the church are often a motley rabble of rather scruffy individuals, half-educated, half-saved, uninspired in our worship, constantly bickering with each other, concerned more for our maintenance than our mission, struggling and stumbling along the road in constant need of rebuke and exhortation, which are readily available in both the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles." That's not Hope Church, of course. That's, that's not us, is it? That's somebody else. But it's true, isn't it? We see this picture that Peter's describing here of a grace-filled community. That's what we want to be a part of. That's what we're longing for. That's what we're thirsting for. And when we get a glimpse of it, we say, yeah, this is what I've been waiting for. And then 
I add myself into the equation with my sin and my selfishness and somehow that grace-filled community gets distorted. What are we to make with this, this ideal that we see of Peter and the reality that we sometimes experience, which is a little bit less? It's very easy to idolize the perfect church community, isn't it? It's very easy to think back to the good old days, and it usually was the good old days when we experienced that perfect church community. We look back with nostalgia, we look back with slightly distorted views, but here's the thing. The community that Peter is talking about here is not something in the past that we view with nostalgia and distortion. It's not even something that we view in the future. What he's talking about is the present reality that we are striving for under God's grace. You see, the church is not a memory, and it's not even a vision. It is a present reality of those people who Yahweh has called to himself, who he has sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, who are being sanctified with the Holy Spirit. The church is a present reality, and guess what? It's us. It's those brothers and sisters who are sitting around you. This is the grace-filled community that you have been called to. And that's what it's supposed to look like, Peter says. Full of sympathy, loving one another, harmonious, like-minded, and humble. It's exactly the type of community that Jesus formed 2,000 years ago. People that followed him, who were harmonious, sympathetic, tender-hearted people who were willing to lay down their lives for the gospel. You know, as I look at those marks, and as I've been praying through those five different marks that Peter articulates in verse 8, and they're all important, they're all vital, I would say this morning that the one key ingredient that I would ask you to focus on, the one key ingredient that I would ask myself to focus on is the last one. It's where Peter says, be humble in spirit. If this grace-filled community is going to thrive and be the type of community that God wants us to be, that last mark, I think, is, I would say, is the key. And I think that's what Peter's been hammering away at for the last few weeks. We submit to the governing authorities. We submit to our masters. We submit to our spouses. We humble ourselves because it's not about us. Be humble in spirit, Peter says. The Lord says in Isaiah 66, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? And so they came into being, declares the Lord. These are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Is that you this morning? Those, these are the ones that God looks on in favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit who tremble at my word. Is that you this morning? Do you open up God's words on a Monday morning? on a Tuesday morning, on a Wednesday night, and do you say, Lord, Lord, you're speaking through this word. 
you tremble when you open God's word. Yahweh speaks to us through his word. And the people that he looks on with favor are those who are humble and contrite in spirit. Those people who don't stand over his word, those people who don't stand over a brother or sister, they are the people who humble themselves and say, Lord, this is your word, speak to me. Yahweh's speaking to you right now. This is God's word. Humble yourself, be humble and contrite of spirit. These are the people whom my favor rests. And guess what happens when we do that? When we humble ourselves, when we tremble before his words, God's grace begins to flow through us. It's not about us anymore. All of a sudden, it's God's grace that's flowing through us. All of a sudden, it's the Holy Spirit sanctifying us, being sprinkled by his blood. You've been chosen for this to reveal his son to one another. That's when that grace-filled community begins to take shape. Peter goes on in verse 9 to say the following, don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because in this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. I said this is tough teaching. It is tough teaching. What do you do when somebody comes up against you and expresses evil to you? What do you do when you are insulted? Well, everything inside us, the natural man says, I want to get my revenge. The natural man said, when we are insulted, we insult back. And Peter says, no, that's not the way of Christ. The way of Christ is when evil comes your way, when you are insulted, what do you do? You return it with a blessing. You don't do that by what you've learned in the world. The only way you can return evil with a blessing is by knowing the sanctifying work of God's grace. Returning evil or insult with a grace. Some of you will be familiar with the, the profound story of Lamers. And uh, in Lamers, if you don't know the story, uh, a man down and out uh, on his luck and on his experience, um, Jean Valjean, he goes and steals from a bishop. And he steals some of the silverware, and he goes off, he makes off with the silverware, and he gets caught up by a policeman, this very hard-hearted Javier. And Javier grabs him and takes him back to the bishop, and, and he, he demands justice for this, for this thief. And the bishop sees inside Javier's heart, and he sees inside the thief's heart, Jean Valjean, and he sees what's going on. And with the accusation, before the policeman can, can pin this crime on him, he says to him, you've forgotten the candelabra. And he takes the candelabra and he gives it to him and he says, take this as well. He replaces evil with a blessing. He returns evil with a blessing. That's exactly what Peter is saying here. When you are wronged, you extend the blessing of God to others. It doesn't come naturally. It comes only by God's grace, as you humble yourself. Peter goes on to quote from Psalm 34, which is a psalm of David that we unpacked a little bit in our midweek brekkie this week. It's a, a profound psalm. I won't go too deeply, but let me read to you verse 10 and following. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. 
They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and the ears, his ears are attentive to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. The eyes of Yahweh are on those who are in right relationship. The eyes of Yahweh are on you this morning when you're in right relationship with your brothers and sisters around you. When you're in right relationship with your family members, the psalm that Peter is quoting is saying that the eyes of God are on you. Not only that, he says, he's attentive to your prayers. He's hearing your prayers. When you turn from evil and when you seek to do good, David says, when you're in right relationship with the brothers and sisters around you, the eyes of Yahweh are on you and his ears are hearing your prayers. Is that you this morning? Does God see you this morning? Does God hear you this morning? This is the transcendent God that Peter is talking about, the God who created all things. His eyes are on you. He's listening to your individual prayers, the God who created everything. Now, for many of us here this morning, this is familiar language. You understand this. But for Peter's first hearers who had grown up in this pagan culture, this was very foreign language. All they knew was paganism. Many gods, these fickle gods who were violent, who were vengeful, who were sexually engaged, who were whimsical, who were flippant. These gods couldn't be trusted, these pagan gods. That's the context of what Peter was talking into. And he speaks a word of this transcendent God who is holy, who created everything separate from creation, and yet his eyes are on you, he's saying. His ears are listening to you. 21st century, I've been saying over the last few weeks, is becoming more and more pagan as the months go by. Our culture is becoming more and more like that culture that Peter was speaking into 2,000 years ago. This week, somebody sent me uh, a version of the latest Critic, or it was the May version of the Critic, which is the Otago University's magazine. I'm not encouraging you to read it. But what he did send to me was an article in that critic in May, which was a profile of one of the chaplains in our university. And this chaplain isn't one of the Christian chaplains. This chaplain is a pagan chaplain. Now, I didn't know our Otago University had a pagan chaplain, but you can go onto their websites. She's not necessarily a part of their team, but you can go on their website and she's engaged with anybody who wants to engage in pagan spirituality. I quote what she said. Now, and I've got no problem with this woman. I've met her, she's a lovely woman, but I have a real problem with the spirituality that she is promoting and endorsing. She said the following, the journey of spiritual awareness is a spiral inwards into nature. And so she goes on to talk about the sacred being found in nature, sexual license is applauded, and one of the defining marks of paganism that is now emerging in our culture very prevalently is that shame is the restraining factor of moral constraint. 
You and I weren't called to be shamed. You and I were called to a different means by a transcendent God. So this culture that we are living in is becoming more and more pagan, and as our university now shows us, it is overtly pagan. Just as it was when Peter was writing 2,000 years ago. But the vision that Peter presents is something all too different from that pagan context. The pagan gods of tolerance, diversity, and inclusion must be appeased, just as Venus and Eros and Zeus had to be appeased in those days. The pagan gods today of tolerance, diversity, and inclusion must be appeased. Otherwise, you will be shamed into silence. What's the vision that Peter is articulating here? The vision of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not many gods who are sexual or violent or unpredictable, but one holy God who stands outside of creation, who sees you, who hears your prayers, who is holy and calls you to be holy. Yahweh, the transcendent God who is gracious and compassionate slow to anger and rich in love. This is the God whom we bow before this morning. This is the God who calls us together this morning, who's revealed himself and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we are not shamed into silence, so that the guilt of our sin can be forgiven. Remember two weeks ago, we talked about the great exchange that Peter articulated from Isaiah 53, the great exchange that took place at the cross of Calvary. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that you might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. No longer under the guilt of the sin that we all carry because as we turn from evil, as Peter instructs us, as we humble ourselves at the cross, we are cleansed of this guilt. We know forgiveness. There is no shame. There is no shame for the follower of Jesus Christ. Do not be shamed into silence by a pagan culture that surrounds you. There is no condemnation, Paul says, for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'll get that later if that's okay. You and I were created not to live in shame or guilt. We were created to live in the freedom of of forgiveness, and in this grace-filled community that Peter is articulating. This grace-filled community because we are filled with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The vision of the apostle that Peter is articulating here is that you can be known by this holy God, that you are known by this holy God. He sees you. He sees you. And he hears you as you turn from evil and as you seek to do right, he sees you and he hears you. He wants you to be a part of this community, the community he calls the church. But more than that, more than that this morning, he wants you to know your purpose. Finally, Peter says, this is what all of this journey of submission is about. Finally, he says, this is your end goal. This is your talus. This is the purpose. You were asked at the beginning of the service, and I didn't know about this bit of homework that Carol has set your children, but you're going to be asked 
What did you learn? Well, you may not have understood it yet, but this is what I wanted you to wrestle with this week. What is your purpose? What is the purpose that God has given to you? What is the purpose for you being placed in your family? What is God asking of you in your family? What is God asking of you? What is your purpose in your workplace? Or for those of you who aren't working in your studies, what is the purpose? Why are you doing these studies? Why are you going off to work tomorrow morning? And let me give you a clue. The reason that God asks you to go to work tomorrow morning is not to get your wage packet to pay the bills. That's an impoverished, worldly understanding of why we work. What is your purpose tomorrow morning? Thirdly, what is your purpose in engaging with the civic aspect of this city? Why are you called to engage as followers of Jesus Christ with the public sphere, with the, with the politics of this world, with the public sphere? What is your purpose? Peter, throughout this letter, has been articulating a vision of the follower of Christ who is called by a transcendent God has been sprinkled by the blood of Christ, is being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. You have a purpose. You have a purpose, and it's found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to wrestle with this. I want you to be able to articulate this. When somebody asks you next week, what's my purpose? I want you to wrestle with this this week and be able to give them the answer. I'm not going to give it to you this morning, but know this. As you wrestle with God in prayer, he hears your prayers and he sees you so that you might know this purpose and find this purpose. Let's bow our heads and our hearts in prayer. Father, as we bow before your word this morning, as we tremble before your word this morning, I want to say thank you for the vision that the apostle is articulating here, a profound vision that is so contradictory to a pagan mind view a pagan mindset. Lord, I pray for each and every one of us this week as we go about our life, Lord, by your grace, would you deepen our understanding of the purpose that you have given to us in our homes, in our workplaces, in the, sub in the public sphere. Lord, show us what it means to be those holy people, those holy people who are set apart to follow you, to serve you, and to love you. We thank you, Lord, that you are calling us this morning. We thank you for reminding us that you see us, that you know us, that you hear our prayers. Show us what it means to be your children, we pray in Jesus' name.